If you have a Bible, please open it to Luke chapter 22. If you don't have one, the text for this morning is written on the back of the insert. You can follow along there. Luke chapter 22. I'd like to begin this morning by reading uh, the passage that we're going to study and having a word of prayer. Luke 22, verses 14 to 20. And when the hour came, he reclined at table, and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, said, Take this and divide it among yourselves, for I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Oh Lord God, as we study these few verses, I pray that you would help us to understand the significance, the importance of that act that we call communion. Here our Lord gives his disciples, gives his church this sign to remember him by, to understand his work through. Help us to see what we might do it in remembrance of him as well. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear. In Jesus' name, amen. Now last week, technically, we began looking at this passage. We looked at really one or two words in it, and then spent the rest of our time in the Old Testament looking at what is this new covenant. Um, so I'm going to hopefully assume you've got some of that background as we go through this. And the, the, the scene plays out in two episodes. This is the hour. Um, we saw it approaching, starting in 22.1, the, the Feast of Unleavened Bread drew near, which is called the Passover. Then in verse 7, then came the day, and now finally the hour has come. This is Passover evening. And Jesus and the disciples will spend one last time together before his arrest, trial, crucifixion. Everything in Luke's gospel has been leading up to this. Ever since Jesus went up on the Mount of Transfiguration, he came down and Luke puts that marker in the text. In chapter 9, he resolutely set his face to go to Jerusalem. Here he is. The hour has come. Jesus enters into his passion ministry here. This text forms a, a seam. It's the end of something, the beginning of something. So we're going to look at it in two points. Point one, Jesus celebrates the Passover, verses 14 through 18. When the hour came, he reclined at table, the apostles with him, and he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves, for I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. Now, Luke begins by giving us the timing. This is the hour. Everything has been leading up to this in this chapter so far. It's getting near. The day has arrived. Now we're here. So Luke, from chapter 21 and 20 through here, has had Jesus in Jerusalem the week before the crucifixion. And what Jesus did day and night was teach in the temple, confounding and combating his enemies. And now the day of Passover has come. Now, 
one observation to make. You may have thought through this. If they're celebrating the Passover now and Jesus is crucified the next day on the Passover, how does that work? Well, the answer is simple. Um, in Jewish timing and, and, and setting of days, they get this from Genesis 1. What makes a day? There's evening, there is morning the first day. And if you know any Jewish friends who celebrate um, the Sabbath, when does the Sabbath end? Sundown. So in the Jewish economy, once night comes, it's the next day. When this meal occurs at night, it's taking place on Passover. When Jesus is hanging on a cross the next day, it's taking place on Passover. So timing-wise, that makes sense. That's not, we divide the day in the middle of the dark period, at midnight. And anything that happens after midnight is the next day. They, they set the division at sundown. So Jesus is reclining at table. He's in this room they've prepared. This is the Greek fashion of eating at a low table. You, you lie on your side, you recline, and you eat. And we saw last week that the meal of Passover was a lamb, spotless lamb, cooked with bitter herbs and served with unleavened bread to commemorate their exodus from Egypt. And one of the things I think we can gloss over when we look at this, we're so familiar with this as the institution of communion, that Jesus, before he institutes communion in this text, enjoys and speaks about simply celebrating the Passover with his disciples. In fact, his language is emphatic. Point B here, after the timing, we have longing. And Jesus is emphatic. I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you. In fact, it's a Hebrewism. I have, with desire, I have desired, is what he says. Um, Jesus really was looking forward to celebrating this Passover with his disciples, and I think for at least a few reasons. The first, the simple act of sharing in this feast remembers and celebrates God's mercy and deliverance. That's the purpose of the memorial of Passover. In Exodus chapter 12, um, we read, that God says to Moses, when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? What, what is this meal that we're having year after year? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover, for he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians, but spared our houses. So this meal commemorates God's sparing, God's mercy, his wrath passing over. The second thing it commemorates is the exodus, his deliverance from Egypt. Deuteronomy 16.3, you shall eat no leavened bread with it. Seven days you shall eat it with unleavened bread, the bread of affliction. For you came out of the land of Egypt in haste, that all the days of your life you may remember the day when you came out of the land of Egypt. So at least two memorial functions in the celebration of Passover. To remember God's wrath and judgment passing over these people who were protected by the blood of the Lamb and remembering how God delivered them from slavery and oppression, making them a people. And there's a joy in doing that. There's a joy that Jesus has with his disciples simply in gathering. And let's focus on God's goodness, his salvation, and his grace. Let's celebrate that together. I think the second reason also why Jesus um, longed for this meal is it offered one last opportunity for fellowship. What's been taking place all week in the temple? Conflict. He's attacked by the scribes, by the Sadducees. We, we went through six bouts, six rounds of Jesus having conflict with the religious leaders as they tried to trap him and attack him and send spies. And what awaits him in the future? The next day is a mock trial, torture, and crucifixion. So here is one brief note, note of, of pause, fellowship, peace. In fact, there's a, there's a deep irony here. Jesus is celebrating in this meal 
God's passing over of judgment on the firstborn. In just a few hours, will God's judgment pass over him? No. He, he celebrates in this meal a God who passes over injustice, passes over in mercy, and yet God's judgment will not pass over him. He celebrates a meal with a Passover lamb is commemorated, its blood, sparing the people. He is that lamb. I mean, our Passover, as Paul refers from in 1 Corinthians 5, is celebrating the Passover as a Jew under the law. So it offers one last opportunity for fellowship. Very soon, Jesus' disciples will forsake him. They'll scatter. Peter will deny him. Judas will betray him. But here, Jesus and these 12 men that he's traveled with for at least three years celebrate a meal, remember God's mercy and deliverance, share some fellowship. And that leaves Jesus into promise. We have timing, longing, promise. He says, for I tell you, and he makes a number of pronouncements, Jesus is seeing, point one here, this meal marks an end and a beginning. It marks an end and beginning. For I tell you, he says in verse 16, that I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom. Then verse 18, for I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. So there's a stopping point. This is the last Passover Jesus will celebrate until... Sometime in the future, something's ending, and something is promised. Something is beginning. And what, what we understand this to be is Jesus' ministry of teaching, Jesus' teach, ministry as a prophet calling the people to repentance and faith, is at an end. He's entering into his passion. The Passover day has begun. Jesus living as an observant Jew under the law, obeying the law of Moses, fulfilling for us the righteousness that we could not obtain on our own, is at an end. And that for which Passover pictured will be fulfilled in him in but a few short hours. And yet, second point here, this very meal and what he's about to do with it promises the fullness of the kingdom. He's mentioned that just briefly. The passage we just came out of in Luke, prior to this was Jesus speaking of his second coming. And in that, we read, if you look at verse uh, 29 of chapter 21, he told them a parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. As soon as they come out and leave, you see for yourselves and know that the summer is already near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away away. And so even in eating this meal with the disciples, there's a promise of the fulfillment of all of the promises. There's a promise that the kingdom will come. I mean, imagine this. Jesus is promising, the third point here, that he will, Jesus will, eat the Passover again with the disciples. Don't miss it. I won't eat again until I eat it with you in the kingdom. Interestingly enough, when the Lord returns and sets up a kingdom, Apparently, one of the feasts we will observe is Passover. And Jesus, earlier in Luke's gospel, spoke of something like this in um, chapter, where is it, 13, when he's warning the Pharisees in that place they'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth, 13, 28, and 29, when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out. And the people will come from east and west and from north and south, and recline at table in the kingdom of God. 
You remember a few Sundays ago, we talked about how in Luke's gospel and in the New Testament, there's ways of speaking about the kingdom being here. Um, as, as God's embassy in this world, God's kingdom has a, has a beachhead, as it were, in this um, contested land, while the God of this world roams around seeking whom he will devour. But even though the kingdom has been inaugurated, there's a consummated kingdom that will come, a fullness of the kingdom. And that's what Jesus is speaking of here. Until... God's will is done on earth as it is in heaven. Until the king reigns on earth in righteousness, Jesus will no longer be partaking of this meal. The time for feasting and rejoicing is at an end. Is the time for fasting. And Jesus also even spoke of that. While the bridegroom is here, we rejoice. Later will come days of fasting. So something is ending, something's beginning, and yet there is a promise in this act of the fullness of the kingdom. And Jesus promises that he will indeed eat the Passover again with the disciples. So before we even look at communion and all that's involved in that, here is Jesus. He's a faithful Jewish man obeying the law of Moses, keeping the feast of Passover, delighting and celebrating God's faithfulness, God's mercy, God's goodness, his deliverance, delighting in his fellowship with the apostles. And as he eats this meal... He promises them that he will come again. He promises them the kingdom will be here. And he, and he indicates that he's entering into a new phase of his ministry. He end, he's indicating that something has come to an end, something is beginning. For he knows, he even mentions it here, he will suffer. And in some senses, we can view this in Luke's gospel as the transition at the beginning of that suffering, that all that follows after this, whether it's the disciples bickering and quarreling about who is greatest, while the greatest one among them is becoming a servant, to his betrayal, his arrest, his crucifixion. Jesus has now entered into the Passover. He has entered into his suffering. And so here in verses 14 to 18, Jesus celebrates the Passover. But probably what is most significant in this passage to us as New Testament believers is that in this passage, Jesus, point two, institutes communion. Jesus institutes communion. We read, He took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. So after celebrating and eating this meal, sometime later on during the meal, Jesus stops. One of the helpful ways of thinking about this is he celebrates the Passover along with the disciples. In one sense, they're all doing the same thing. All of these Jewish men are observing under the law the commanded Passover, according to Deuteronomy 18. But here, Jesus now becomes the Lord. He institutes something. He changes and molds this sign into something else. So he's one with them in, in celebrating the Passover. And here, he, he, he takes charge and institutes something. And the two elements of what we call communion, it's otherwise known as the Lord's table. You may have heard of it called the Eucharist in some circles. Um, whatever name it goes by, I'm using communion for our purposes this morning, but in some sense it doesn't make much difference. Jesus here institutes. This is that observance that we observe Monthly, some churches do it weekly. Some churches I know do it daily. And so it's our opportunity to understand what it is and what it is we do. Um, Here is Jesus' commission and warrant. We're to do something in remembrance of him. 
What is that? Well, we're just going to look at it in the two elements that Jesus takes. The first is the bread, which he identifies as his body. The bread, which is Christ's body. Now, that phrase that Jesus uses um, in verse 19, this is my body, um, is, is subject to a lot of debate. But first, before we get to that phrase, and we will, notice what he does. He, he gave thanks, he broke it, and he passed it out. Now, if you've heard of this referred to as the Eucharist, that's simply the Greek verb for give thanks. And since Jesus, in both instances, verse 17, verse 19, gave thanks in the early church, this meal was referred to as the thanksgiving, or the Eucharisto. Um, it's taken on more liturgical terms, and in, and in some circles it has very specific meanings. I don't favor that term because of that baggage, but simply coming from the verb to give thanks, it's great, it's fine. That's where that term comes from. And Jesus, in giving thanks over both of these elements, I think is indicating that whatever he's doing is something given to him by the Father. He's thankful for it, he blesses it, he thanks the Father for the bread, for the cup, and I think we are to understand that what these things symbolize come and flow from the Father. He gave thanks, he broke, and then passed out the bread. And then Jesus does something astounding. Jesus gave the sign new meaning. He gave the sign new meaning. I've got to pause and argue this is a sign. Because of course, there are churches and, and people who follow Christ who believe that this bread, when we celebrate the Lord's table, is more than bread. Um, the two largest views are consubstantiation and transubstantiation. I won't go into that. I think it's clear and easy to argue from this passage. It's a sign. It is not more than a sign. It is a sign. Being a sign is a powerful thing, but it's a sign. The, the simplest reason I can argue for that is I don't think anyone in the upper room with Jesus, prior to his crucifixion, prior to his death on the cross, when Jesus breaks bread and hands it out and says, this is my body, would think for a moment, I have Jesus' body in my hand when Jesus is feet away from them. But even more to the point, Jesus is taking something from a memorial meal that itself is already a sign. He's taking something that in its first instance use in the Passover celebration is said to be a sign. We read in Deuteronomy, seven days, Deuteronomy 16.3, you shall eat it with unleavened bread, the bread of affliction, for, here's why, why do we eat unleavened bread at Passover? For you came out of the land of Egypt in haste, that all the days of your life you may remember the day when you came out of the land of Egypt. So they were told this bread, unleavened as part of the Passover meal, was to remind them of something, which is what signs do. They point to other things. So Jesus takes something that is already understood in its first instance to be a sign and then in front of them gives that sign new meaning. I, don't, I can't imagine any of the disciples in that context thinking, no, somehow this is really Jesus' body, even though Jesus' body is right there. I could touch him. I don't see how anyone could think that. It, in its first instance, was a sign, and I think quite clearly to anyone there, it'd be clear he's giving it new sign meaning. Jesus gave a sign new meaning. So point one, formerly the bread was a reminder of their exodus from Egypt. Exodus 12, 17. You shall observe the Feast of Unleavened Bread, for on this very day I brought your host out of the land of Egypt. Deuteronomy 16, 3. That all the days of your life you remember the day 
and you came out of the land of Egypt. So they're to remember this bread. And the reason why it was unleavened was the Lord was going to deliver them, but he didn't tell them at what hour. And they had to be ready. They were to eat in haste with their belt strapped around their waist, their clothes on, and the bread wasn't allowed time to rise. It was a picture of their haste and deliverance from Egypt. Their flight was sudden. And so they eat unleavened bread, and it reminds them of God's sudden and miraculous deliverance from Egypt. That's what it formally meant. And now it represents Christ's sacrifice for them. Now it represents Christ's sacrifice for them. This is my body, which is given for on behalf of you. Now Jesus doesn't alter the meaning of the lamb. I mean, that'd be interesting. We could have communion every month with lamb. I, for one, would not complain. But he, he, lamb is good. Um, But he takes the bread. And he, this is my body given for you. And in the connection of Passover, the lamb and its blood was applied on behalf of the people. The Lord saw the lamb and he passed over. And so Jesus is indicating this bread now points to his sacrifice for them on the cross. In Luke 18, 13, the tax collector, you remember, beat his breast, cried out to God, propitiate, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus has already indicated that what we need is a sacrifice. We need another's life and death on our behalf. And he is pointing now this bread, not to point back to the deliverance from Egypt, but to point to the cross and his sacrifice. And he says it's to be eaten in remembrance of Christ and his death. It's to be eaten in remembrance of Christ and his death. This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And of course, the Apostle Paul quotes that in, in, in 1 Corinthians 11. And from that, we get the warrant. If you wonder, why do we celebrate communion? Where did this come from? It came from our Lord. He told us to do this. The Apostle Paul repeats that in 1 Corinthians 11, that we are to do this as often as we do this. And that's why there's some flexibility among churches on how often communion is celebrated weekly, monthly. Some churches, I think, actually do it once a year. And there's some churches I knew of in L.A. that did it every day. I think there's some freedom there, but we're to do it in remembrance of Christ's death on the cross, and that's what we do. And so when we gather and we stop what we're doing as a a church and we take the bread, we're stopping and remembering Christ's body given for us on the cross. That's the, the meaning of the bread, Christ's body to be eaten in remembrance of Christ and his death. And then we're going to look at the cup, the cup of the new covenant. And of course, that phrase, new covenant, is what we spent the majority of our time looking at last week. And I'll just remind you briefly that after the exodus, and the exodus from Egypt was precipitated by the Passover lamb. If you remember, it was the 10th and final plague that finally broke Pharaoh's hardness, and he finally relented and let the people go as the firstborn son in every household where blood was not applied was struck dead. And so the Passover is the event that initiates the exodus. And as the people are delivered, where do they go straight to? Mount Sinai. And they get the Ten Commandments and they enter into a covenant with God. And yet that covenant was weak. That covenant would not suffice with these type of people who are weak. And so we read in Hebrews 8. In fact, turn to Hebrews 8 very quickly. just want to review what we looked at last week. In Hebrews 8, 
the author of Hebrews will cite um, Jeremiah 31 where the promise of the new covenant is given. And he draws some points from this. See, there's a covenant under Moses, but the people failed to keep it. And they were scattered among the lands, just as the Lord said they would. In Hebrews chapter 8, verse 6, we read, But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better. So the author of Hebrews is making the argument, Jesus' covenant, this new covenant, is better, superior, to the covenant with Moses. Then he cites Jeremiah 31 to prove that contention. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, and here begins the quotation of Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, and I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah. And he describes this new covenant in contrast with the old. We're looking at here are the ways the new covenant is superior. Remember, we saw five things. One, that unlike the old covenant, God would cause his people in the new covenant to remain faithful to it. He, he would cause us to persevere. We sing, he will hold me fast. He will not let me go. Verse 9, not like the covenant made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant. So I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. And you remember that first generation who said, we will serve the Lord, we receive this ratified covenant at Sinai. What did they do? They rebelled, they wandered around for 30 years in the wilderness, and they died, and their children entered the promised land. And so the new covenant will be unlike that. If you're a member of the new covenant, you won't fall away. You won't perish in the wilderness. For this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I'll put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. So another superiority, the old covenant came with an external law written on tablets of stone. And as marvelous as that was, written by the finger of God, this is better to have God's law internal. It's the difference between an endo and an exoskeleton having something within, God's law within. Next, we saw that in the new covenant, each and every member of the covenant would have knowledge, direct knowledge of God, an unmediated relationship with God. If you hear someone say a personal relationship with Jesus, that's the type of thing they're getting at. You don't go through a human priest to talk to God. You have a direct, read it right here. Verse 11, they shall not each teach his neighbor And each teach his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. So if you're a participant in the new covenant, to some degree you know God. And yes, we may need to know him better. Certainly we do. But you know him. And finally, under the new covenant, God will forgive our sins. Put them away. For, verse 12, I will be merciful towards their iniquities, and I'll remember their sins no more. So this is the new covenant that Jesus has purchased by his blood. And so he takes the cup, and he makes this radical announcement. And we're so used to these words of institution, I think we can sort of roll over us. But you remember, this promise of a new covenant was made by the prophet Jeremiah. It's been over 400 years since God says, in the face of their exile to Babylon. That's the context. Jeremiah shows up and tells Jerusalem and Israel, Don't fight Nebuchadnezzar. God has given you into his hand because you have broken his covenant because you've been faithless. Therefore, God will, as he said, take you away. Don't fight him. Don't resist. It's futile. And in that horrible news, in that context, Jeremiah says, but 
The Lord's not done with you. The Lord will not make an utter end of you. The Lord will make a new covenant with you. A better covenant. A covenant where he will cause you to walk in his ways. A covenant where he will put his law in your hearts. And a covenant where he will know each and every one of you. And it's a wonderful promise, but then over 400 years go by. Where is this new covenant? Where is this new covenant? And then suddenly in Jerusalem, in an upper room, a lay preacher and carpenter says, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. I mean, that is huge. And it is a huge claim. Because Jesus is linking this new covenant with his own blood. So let me just make some observations of this. Um, Jesus had them divide the wine and gave thanks. We're given that in verse 17. Um, Some some of the people trying to compare the three Gospels get confused because in, in Matthew and in Mark, it's bread cup. And here in Luke, it's cup, bread cup. And Luke simply tells us that before he gave the bread as a sign, he divided the cup. So presumably there's a common source, a pitcher of wine. And he divides it among them. How do you do that? You pour it into people's cups. And then with that preparation done, he broke the bread, handed it out, and then he gave the sign of the bread and he gave the sign of the cup, which is why we're looking at it in this order. And again, he gave thanks. And again, that points to this cup and what it symbolizes, what about the study, is, is from the Father. It's something he's thanking God for. So here's the significant difference, though. Whereas with the bread, Jesus is taking a sign that has already signified something and redirecting it or giving it added meaning. It, it formerly the bread looked to the Exodus. Now it looks to Jesus' body given for them. Here, Jesus institutes a new sign. I mean, think about that. Wine has no formal place in the Passover service. I mean, it's usually assumed for Mediterranean Jewish people that table wines could be at most meals, but nowhere in Exodus 12 or Deuteronomy 16, where the two passages of institution are given for Passover, is wine listed. It it had no former significance. And again, we're so accustomed to the cup representing the blood. I'm just doing a study through the Old Testament. You can do this yourself. But the predominant picture for wine is of celebration, rejoicing, marriage suppers. I found one passage in Isaiah 63 where wine was linked with blood. And certainly there are places where wine, when it's connected with drunkenness, was linked with debauchery. But in most instances, you hear things like this. Psalm 4, 7. You put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. Or Psalm 104, 14 to 15. You cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man. Oil to make his face shine and bread to strengthen man's heart. But more specifically, the Messianic age, the kingdom that the Messiah would bring in was typified as one with abundant wine. Listen to Joel 3.18. And in all that day, the mountains shall drip sweet wine. The hills shall flow with milk. And all the stream beds of Judah shall flow with water. And a fountain shall come forth from the house of the Lord and water the valley. So, We are so used to thinking of it as associated with wine. What Jesus does, I think, is somewhat surprising. He takes a cup of wine, divvied out among the disciples, which I think most naturally would picture rejoicing, celebrating, feasting, and he points it to death and blood. Wine was, point one, not a necessary part of the Passover. Point two, the cup now represents the blood 
of the new covenant. This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. And so formerly, it pointed to feasting, rejoicing, celebration, now to death. And, and the logic is covenants require blood. Uh, in the Hebrew, you don't make a covenant. Literally, you cut a covenant. The first covenant we have in the Bible, God makes with Abraham, and Abraham takes the, the animals and the birds, and he cuts them in two and divides them, and God passes through the cut animals. The sign of that covenant is circumcision, a cutting that takes place. And, and the picture is, may this happen to me if I break this? You cut covenants, and so covenants always have connected to them blood. In fact, in very similar languages and, and phrase, listen to how Moses enacts the Mosaic Covenant in Exodus. So they leave the Passover lamb slaughtered, they leave Egypt, they go to Sinai, and then Moses says this in Exodus 24, 8, Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. And so the author of Hebrews comments this in Hebrews 9, 18 to 19, Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood, For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people. So if Jesus is inaugurating a new covenant, there needs to be blood. And we know it was only through Jesus' bloody death that the new covenant was purchased and made possible at all. And again, it's easy to get hung up here. People can focus on the blood. And if by blood you mean Jesus' bloody death, amen, hallelujah, praise the Lord, Jesus didn't have magic blood, however. It's not as though Jesus could have come to a blood drive, given you know, a couple quarts, and gone back up to heaven, and that would have done anything. The blood is significant insofar as it signifies the bloody death. So the blood points to a bloody death, a sacrifice on our behalf. And what Jesus is saying, this cup is going to symbolize the new covenant poured out, purchased in my blood. Point B, Jesus' bloody death purchased the new covenant. This is the cost by which the new covenant comes. And we're not told that in Jeremiah. We're just told God will make a new covenant. And here we now know at what cost. The new covenant is purchased and inaugurated in Jesus' own blood. And so now we have these two signs. We have bread pointing to a body given, a sacrifice given on our behalf, a cup which points to a new covenant, a superior covenant, a better covenant purchased by the Lamb of God. Point C here, to be drunk in remembrance of both the price that was paid and the blessing that was obtained. The price, his blood. The blessing, the new covenant. So when we drink the cup, we remember those two things. This was made possible by the bloody death of Jesus. What was made possible? The new covenant. The better covenant. I want to make one last point before we close. Turn to Luke 9. Luke 9. Verse 28 what is commonly known as the transfiguration. Luke 
Now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter, John, and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. Behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. Now, your Bible may not have this, but my ESV has a footnote on the word departure. And I go down to the bottom, and it says literally the Greek is exodus. Now think about that. Jesus is up on the Mount of Transfiguration. And this, in Luke's gospel, is the turning point where Jesus, remember, he spends three years teaching the people as a prophet, instructing the people, working miracles. And then, as soon as he comes down from the mountain... We read verse 51 of chapter 9, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. Verse 53, the Samaritans did not receive him because his face was set towards Jerusalem. And all the rest of Luke's gospel from chapter 9 on, on his way, on his way, as they're going, and we're to understand, on his way to Jerusalem. So the man of transfiguration is pivotal, and he's up on the mount. He's communing with the Father. He's glorified. Elijah and Moses appear. What are they talking to him about? They talk to him about the exodus that he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. You start thinking, how can we think of the work Jesus does in Jerusalem as an exodus? And then Jesus, at the celebration of the Passover, the celebration of the exodus, takes that sign and he works it and adds to it so that it points to his work and his new covenant ministry. And so I want to suggest to you just quickly three ways that speaking of what Jesus does in Jerusalem on the cross fits in with the Exodus narrative. The Exodus narrative was, after all, the great act of salvation of God in the Old Testament. Again and again, the Old Testament writers look back to the, the ultimate sign of God's goodness and faithfulness, his, his character as a deliverer and a savior to the Exodus. With a strong and outreached army, you delivered your people from Pharaoh. Out of Egypt, it says, I've, I've called my son. And yet God's ultimate act of redemption and salvation takes place in Jerusalem with Jesus on the cross. The exodus was made possible. God's wrath was removed by the death of a lamb. John the Baptist points out Jesus. What does he say? Behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 5 says, Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed for us. So a lamb died, blood was applied, that people might be forgiven, that wrath might pass over them. That's one point of comparison. A second point of comparison is that the Exodus, God delivers his people from physical slavery and physical bondage and oppression. In fact, this was one of the issues that the Jews of Jesus' day stumble over, isn't it? They're looking for a deliverer who will deliver them from under the thumb of Rome. And so as long as they think Jesus might be doing that, that Jesus might be bringing a geopolitical salvation, they're all on board. They're excited. And once it becomes clear he's not initially offering that, they turn on him. Because Jesus on the cross delivers his people from slavery and bondage to sin. And Paul in Romans chapter 6 uses that very language. Listen to this. Romans chapter 6. Verse 20, for when you were slaves to sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. 
Or verse 17, thanks be to God that you who were once slaves to sin have become obedient from the heart to a standard of teaching to which you were committed and have been set free from sin, become slaves to righteousness. So we can view Jesus' death on the cross as, as freeing captives from slavery to sin and his power. And the third point of comparison is that the Exodus and the Passover account is, is what precipitates and is immediately followed by God's people entering into a covenant with him at Sinai. And, and implicitly tied up with Jesus' death on the cross is, we see in this text, the purchase of the new covenant. So Jesus is performing a second and greater Exodus in Jerusalem. In the, in the coming chapters that we're going to have in Luke, we're going to see the Lamb of God die for the sins of the people. We're going to see a deliverance from slavery be enacted. We're to see a new covenant come and be purchased by Christ's blood. This is the greater prophet like Moses. This is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And he has given us this sign for us to remember his body given up for us, to remember the cost. We were not redeemed with perishable things like gold or silver, but by the precious blood of the Lamb of God. And in this meal, it also is a promise of something coming. Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me until he comes again, Paul adds in 1 Corinthians 11. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up as we sing our closing song. It's a song we normally sing before communion, but having just studied this passage, I think it's wholly appropriate. Um, Don't misunderstand. Just because I believe communion is only a sign doesn't mean it is unimportant. God takes signs very seriously. Signs can be sacred things. So let us sing how sweet and awful is the place.